0: All right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I had an unexpected uh, day yesterday. We had to uh, not broadcast on Tuesday. What was at the heart of it? Well, the hard drive on my computer completely failed.
1: (laughs) You just have to put another quarter in the machine.
0: Is that what I had to do? It just takes a quarter? Quarter slot. I see. Three three plays, I think. That's a big quarter slot. It looks like the, about the size of a CD. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately I was I, I couldn't get to any of my show files. Boy, that's no fun. But, uh, by the way, in case you haven't heard, I'm a Macintosh junkie. And so Macintosh has this wonderful, Apple has this wonderful backup system called uh, Time Machine. And uh, I back up my laptop on Time Machine religiously, let's let's put it that way. And uh, it happens over my airport network, and so every hour, it's you know it's it's backing up my computer. And uh, and I was able to go back to um, I think within fifteen minutes of the crash, you know that that current of a copy of my uh, my hard drive. And it took just took a couple hours to put it back onto the computer after I rebuilt the hard drive, and voila! I have a brand new computer now. Isn't that great? <laughs> I know you all wanted to hear this because um, the the things that excite me technologically, I know they just excite all of you too. Because I know all of you listening to Fighting for the Faith are nerds, right? Maybe not. Okay, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And I I actually mean that. My job here is to serve you by dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. We compare what's going on in the world of religion and Christianity or general spirituality, and we compare it to the Word of God. Um, That means that if there's some popular teacher who's got the latest, greatest fad going on, because, you know... We got a fad in uh, evangelical in American evangelicalism about once a week, right? Is that is that about what? Yeah. So if somebody's got a book deal and and everyone's jumping on the bandwagon with their book, um, and we we do that obnoxious thing. We actually do what the Bereans do. We take what they say. And we compare it to the Word of God. Why? Well, because we believe in something called sola scriptura, that is, that the Bible alone is the supreme authority of truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. Not what you feel. It's not what you feel. You don't get to uh, divine the truth using the force, liver shiver, uh, dreams. M- m- what dreams. Dreams, dreams, visions, angels appearing at your bedside or uh, you having a mocha latte with uh, Jesus at the local Starbucks, none of that counts. Um, the Bible alone, the Scripture alone. Why? Because it's the revealed Word of God. And the authority for me to make such a statement is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so if, if what you say, including myself, if what you hear is, is contradicts the Word of God, that person is uh, mistaken or wrong or heretical, kind of depending. There's a little bit of a scale there, you know. Um and uh and so the goal here is to help you grow in your Christian faith, biblical understanding, how to defend Christianity against the errors that are out there and defend yourself, defend your family, defend your friends against uh, this bad doctrine that's making circuits nowadays and uh and ultimately exalt Christ, proclaim him and glorify him through the preaching of the gospel, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins for you. Yeah, that that you, you listening to this program, did you know that Christ died for your sins? Even the ones you committed this morning since you woke up? Yeah, you don't have to earn salvation. God is giving it to you completely gratis. Free gift, 100% full pardon for all of your sins. So uh, anyway, today's program, we're going to be, we got some good listener email. I got an email today, uh, not today, I got it yesterday, from a 16-year-old gal. Probably one of the one of the best emails I've received from a teenager. this gal is obviously wise beyond her years. Good questions, good points um, we'll be getting to that shortly uh, we've got a news story coming out of the u k There was a nurse who was suspended for offering to pray for elder, elderly elderly patients uh, that were you know, she was going to pray for them and pray that God would help them recover, and she was suspended for it we'll be reading that news story we 're going to continue working our way through the gospel of Mark. We're going to take a listen to uh, Brian McLaren from a speech that he gave at the National Cathedral about a year ago now. And uh, it's talking about postmodern Christianity is understood as a story. We're going to listen to how he handles the scriptures. And we're going to do a little comparative work here because... uh, um, I when I listen to those postmodern guys, I always think we're getting sold a bill of goods. They're telling some kind of a narrative or a meta narrative that isn't doesn't isn't exactly grounded in reality, and uh, we're going to challenge some of his meta narrative today, just because I like saying that word meta narrative. Um, and then depending on time, you know, I've been promising to do this relevant ser- sermon for a while on the Dark night. We're we're, we're going to review. <laughs> I don't know if we'll get to it today. It just depends. You know, uh, I promised this to a few people, and I've received emails from people saying, hey, when are you going to review that Dark Knight sermon that you, you promised that you would do? I think I promised this, like, back in in December, so uh, much to the chagrin of John, because he's already shaking his head, he can tell this is not going to be a good sermon. Uh, <laughs> either today or tomorrow, we're going to be listening to uh, Pastor—is it Paul or Tim Worth? I forget. Pastor Worth from Relevant Church there in Florida, and uh, his sermon on uh, the Batman movie, The Dark Knight. Because I mean, with the Academy Awards coming up, and you know Heath Ledger, you know posthumously being. Nominated for, you know, an Academy Award for his role as the Joker. I mean, how could we not be relevant and uh, exalt God and Jesus Christ in the story of the Dark Knight? John, you seem... It's ridiculous. (laughs) Let's look for God here. Oh! Yeah. What? There's there's like a whole... We talked about this. I I won't talk about it today, but uh, I'll just mention it in passing. I... Another Christian Post story, Um, how to share your faith using the MTV's uh, show, uh, something like Best Dance Crew or something like that, because I had no idea that MTV on that Dance Crew show, which I've never even seen one episode at this point, so maybe, I mean, maybe they exalt Jesus Christ on that Dance Crew show on MTV, but boy, um, I am skeptical. On oh.
1: Christ and Doctor Seuss books, Myrtle the Turtle.
0: Yeah, well, remember Theologians for your noggin? Oh, those are awful. Yeah, awful, I, awful. I got an email from somebody asking me about you know, where to find that in the archives. I got to go back and find that thing for that guy and bring it out now. Um, I, I guess Sesame Street will be next. You know, <laughs> is it true that the Cookie Monster is no longer the Cookie Monster? He's like the Veggie Monster or something now. I think he eats carrots. He eats carrots, but I'm not positive. So he he, he no longer sings that song. C is for Cookie, and cookies are for me. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Show. Would it be C is for carrots, and carrots are from? Does he sing that? I, I don't know. He sang the last one. <laughs> All I know is that when my my children were really small, and they would watch Sesame Street, that Elmo character, the the, the, the that, the, that high pitched Elmo voice, um, I actually would have violent dreams of doing harm to that Muppet. You know, but <laughs> that's again just showing my <clears throat> my lack of sanctification, I guess. But anyway, so anyway, uh, so you're right. We could probably that would be really relevant for those people who have kids that are that are, are, are toddlers and stuff. Finding Jesus in Sesame Street, because <sighs> I mean that's why Sesame Street exists is to proclaim Christ, right? M- maybe Big Bird's the God character. Really, I, th- I, I I don't know. Big Bird? I don't know. Okay, all right. Well, um, I, I, maybe Bert is. Bert. You yeah, remember Ernie and Bert? They seem more like disciples to me. They do. Yeah. All right. You know, we got to work this out. I mean, if we're gonna if we're, if we're gonna do Sesame Street allegory, you know, for the gospel, we we gotta we gotta we gotta hammer out which of our characters should be. If you have a suggestion as to who you think it should be, the Christ character, in you know, from the Sesame Street Muppets, email me I, and your reasoning for it, because I'm sure it'll be just pure radio entertainment. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. All right, got a couple of—I uh, like to start off with some of the lighter emails. Uh, Steve writes, uh, he, he says, all right, uh, so you were talking about Facebook, and I was sitting here wondering, what theology does Facebook follow? Remember, we talked about the fact that I haven't—the the weeds are growing in my Facebook account, and I need to you know go on there and answer some of my, uh, my messages and emails on my Facebook. Approve the new friends. And um, update my status because it's been a little while since I've updated my status. He says anyway. So C says the best I can come up with would be that anyone that is engaging in updating their status in Facebook would would have to be a secular humanist. <laughs> so if you're if you're a, a chronic uh, habitual facebooker, is that a word? It is now. Okay. All right. If you're a facebooker, and uh, so if you're following people on Facebook, does that make you a facebookie? Yeah, that sounds like gambling to me. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, all right. Bookie. Bookie. Uh, bookie. Uh, okay. Uh, so anyway, so if, if the uh, – p- according to Steve, the theology that Facebook follows, if you're doing – if you're uh, always updating your Facebook status, then you have to be a secular humanist. And the reason why is because those people are totally exegeting their own lives. Okay? So – and I think it's totally unbiblical. We should revolt. Down with Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that's Steve from Pasadena, Texas. Oh, that's funny. Okay, okay. And uh, Michael Ritzman, you know our our accountant friend, uh, writes, hey, you, uh, "Row, row, row your bro." <laughs> that's new. See, I I now officially have far more names than uh, than Nicholas Edward, uh, Edward uh, Charmley. And Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. I've got more names than he does now. I've got row 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 your bro now. He says, "Dude, I found it." Joel Osteen's reference to uh, filling your mouth with God's blessing. It's in the message from Psalm thirty four eight. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah, the other day we did a. Uh, <clears throat> what's the polite way of saying this? Uh, we did a sermon review of Joel Osteen's latest sermon. The uh, increasing your capacity to receive, which was a complete biblical abomination. And uh, yeah, you heard me right. During that uh, sermon review, I said it was satanic. And my rationale for saying that was not because Joel Osteen is out there telling us that we need to you know, You know, wear black clothes, have these strange cultic practices, and sacrifice our children. You know, on on an altar. But because Satanism actually teaches not that any of that stuff—that's a cultic practice. The Goths, yeah, the Goths. The the Satanism actually in Goth listening, listening would disagree with you. They they don't they don't want to sacrifice children either. They they just have a fascination with darkness anyway, um, Satanism is founded on the premise that you are your own God. It's all about you. What's expedient for you? What makes you feel good? What makes you happy? That's what you need to do and what you need to focus on. And and the, the God that Joel Osteen describes in his sermons is pretty much that God, you know, the God that exists to make you happy and give you what you want. But see, he's a very limited God, too, because Joel Osteen said the God's sitting on the sidelines kind of wringing his hands, going, I want to bless you more, but you got a small, you got your cups too small. So, uh, Michael Ritzman found the, found the, he quote, he says in the Psalms, it says, open your mouth and taste, open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him (sighs) out of context. Go read it in context, by the way, folks, that's if you really want, don't want to be schnookered by these guys, including me, if you don't want to be schnookered, I'm not saying I'm schnookering people, but you always test everything that everybody claims about God against the word of God, period. And... A simple rule for understanding God's word is context, context, and context, okay? Funny enough, if you actually, someone's quoting a verse to you, back it up a little bit, move it forward, you know, a little bit, you know, it, uh, that's not to say that somebody can't nail it, you know, when they're quoting a verse or even part of a verse. The, the question is, is what they're saying, you know, in that verse, the, or they're claiming that the verse says, is what that really teaches when you read it in context, OK, anyway, he says, uh, when my wife uh, was in sales, we listened to tons of motivational sales training classes by Zig Ziglar. Oh, I've had to sit through one of those. Uh, one of the best salesmen on the planet. And when I hear Joel give his talks, it reminded me of these types of seminars, except I'd say Zig Ziglar is uh, more orthodox than Joel. Uh, there'd be some people who would put the two kind of in the same camp. Uh, and by the, my, uh, Michael Ritzman, he has a postscript to this email. He says, P.S., you have a spirit person and he has a womb. Thanks, Michael. You've officially weirded me out. <laughs> okay. All right. Now we've got an emergency email we've got to answer okay. um, from Zach. I answered an earlier email of his, I think, last week, and now he has a follow-up question. And um, and so and then, uh, with, with time permitting, we'll also get to this uh, this uh, email from Samantha from Georgia, who's 16 years old. I mean, just amazing email from her okay zach writes <clears throat> dear mr row phone <laughs> what's a row phone that's you oh okay. oh okay. i'm a row phone you are now <laughs> okay apparently see adding to my list you know what i it'd be funny if we compiled the entire list of all these tortured ways of saying my name and I, I like the fact that, that everyone's being really lighthearted and, and good-spirited about it because I'm so used to my norm, name being tortured. This is actually kind of fun. He says, Dear Mr. Uh, Rofone, thank you for the so much for answering my question on the podcast. I was de- It was definitely the highlight of my week. I told all my friends, but I don't think they found it as impressive as I hoped. <laughs> They're going, Rofone who? <laughs> Who's this Rofone guy? I, I sit here every day and I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> At least I don't have to worry about you uh, puffing up my ego. <laughs> I'm going to have to go see my counselor now. <laughs> anyway, he says I ran to another bunch of campus pastors. I ran to another bunch of campus pastors today and stopped to talk to, to the ubiquitous man of the side, and we got into a discussion about the law because the gospel wasn't really present anyway. And he made an interesting claim. Sin for Christians should be the exception. That's his claim. Okay. And let me, I'm going to read this email and then circle back to answer the questions. He says, he says, sin for Christians should be the exception, not the rule. I only sin sparingly, this guy claimed. Wow. He's holier than I am. He says, I challenged him on this, which you should have done by the way, Zach. And he replied, well, think about it this way. God cannot be in the presence of sin. Okay, and this this is what we call a syllogism. Okay, watch. There's there's some missing points here. So the premise number one: God cannot be in the presence of sin. And so uh, Zach nodded in agreement. And so the guy concluded: So if you're in sin, if you sin, you're not with Him. Okay, that's what this guy claimed. Okay, so the guy continues: says I do not, I do. uh, Actually, Zach says I do sin and I do repent. But if you're sinning every day, James would say that you aren't really a Christian. Oh, apparently that guy says that. Okay, hang on a second. Let's. Okay, let me make sure I got all the characters right here. Zach asked this guy the question. The guy says, "God cannot be in the presence of sin." He nodded in agreement. That's Zach. So if you're if you sin, you're not with Him. I do sin, and I do repent. But if you're sinning every day, James would say that you aren't really a Christian. That's okay. This is this guy talking. So Zach asking the interjects here says, "I wasn't sure how to take this." I've thought a lot since about the frequency of sin. This guy was making the claim that he hadn't sinned all day. For example, we spoke to him around noon. So he'd made it all the way to noon without sinning. I wonder if he walked or drove there. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Because if he drove there, I'm bet you he sinned.
0: Right. You know, there there's that thing called the speed limit. Speed limits, traffic laws, blinkers, all those things. Right. And we'll get to how to deal with that by taking a look at the law. And he says, uh, so he says, I wasn't sure how to take this. Okay, so uh, uh, I know personally I'd sinned probably 10 to 15 times already that, uh, to, at that point in the day. And the number was only low because I got up at 1030. So <laughs> within an hour and a half, uh, poor Zach here has already you know, you know, racked up 10 to 15 sins. And I would say, you know, Zach, that's probably low. That's a conservative number. He says, I'm beginning to doubt whether or not I, I, I really am a Christian. See, this is why we have to handle this question. Uh, Zach, you are absolutely a Christian. Hang in there. We'll walk you through it. He says, I can't honestly say that I've ever started one single day loving God with all of my heart, mind, and strength. Amen. That's good confession. And he said, and yes, I repent of my sin, but I can't really claim that I ever have zero intention of ever committing those exact same sins again. If I'm repenting of lying, for example, I'm generally heartbroken over my failure. I also know that my contrite spirit will not prevent me from lying in the future. And I mean in the immediate future, like I'll probably end up lying or telling a half-truth or something the very... I, he says the next day. I'll, I'll say, you know, you might even do it the same day. H- have I really repented? Isn't repentance a turn from sin? Great question. Uh, am, am, I, am I just constantly turning and turning uh, to and fro from Christ? Is is that a Christian life, constant failure? If this man is so sure he hasn't sinned in a day, why am I so unsure that I've ever had a single second where I was not truly sinning? I need your help. I am not as sure of my salvation as I was two hours ago. Okay, this is a great, great email. And Zach, we're going to help you out here biblically. Number one, let's take. A, we're going to take a look back at uh, this unnamed pastor guy. Um, and look at his, um, we're going to look at his reasoning first of all, and we're going to compare it to the word of God. We're going to give you some assurance of your salvation here and we'll go from there. Okay. Um, okay. So the guy said that, uh, sins, sin for Christians should be the exception, not the rule. Okay. Now I've heard this claim before myself. Okay. Now, right off the bat, I would challenge that assertion because it's an undocumented, un, you know, there's no biblical passage to uh to back that up i would basically say okay show me the verse that says that okay
1: what did what did, uh paul call himself oh
0: we're gonna get there okay okay, okay. You're, okay. you're gonna okay. steal my thunder john <laughs> and you know, everyone knows that you know when i thunder you know
2: <laughs> yeah okay
0: <laughs> But you're on the right track. Yeah, really good. Anyway, so so he says, sin for Christians should be the exception, not the rule. And then he said he only sins sparingly. I would challenge that guy and basically say, okay, well, let's pull out the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments, and let's just do some comparative work. Go to Exodus chapter 20 and start walking him through it. Okay? You know, because that is a very interesting assertion. And there's a couple of reasons why somebody would say that. Okay, I would basically say they don 't really understand what god 's law is demanding of them, okay, and Zach, you have a far better understanding of what god 's law is demanding of you because you realize that you don't wake up any single day loving God with all of your heart. You have a better understanding of the law than this guy, and so what happens is is that over and over and over again, people who say they're pulling off the law that they 're keeping it they 're sinning sparingly, the only way they can say that in a good conscience is if they really don't understand what the law is expecting of them okay and anyone who says well i i i have gone you know a couple of days loving the lord your god with all of your, my heart you know really have you did you sin during those two days well yeah the problem is is that there's clear passages of scripture that uh that say that if you're sinning then you're not loving god so you can't make the claim that you are okay so anyway, the second part of this is his syllogism is a little bit skewed, and it's missing a very important element, okay? It says God cannot be in the presence of sin. Okay, well, I'll grant you that, that premise. Okay, sure, God can't be in the presence of sin, right? But the conclusion doesn't logically follow, nor does it biblically follow. So if you sin, you're not with him, Okay. That being the case, um, our salvation is not based upon Christ and his mercy and the forgiveness of sins by, won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Instead, your salvation is based upon whether or not you are sinning. In other words, you're keeping of the law. This guy doesn't understand the law, and he doesn't understand the gospel. Okay, So he's, if he says that he, if you sin, you're not with him, and the guy then turns around and said, I do sin and do repent, but if you're sinning every day, James would say that you're not really a Christian. Where, where does James say that? Where does James say that if you're sinning every day, you're not a Christian? Actually, James says something rather interesting. If you look at James chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we we got from the disciple James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, James 2, 10, he says, "Who Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So every time you sin you break one of the Ten Commandments, or one of the commandments, you're actually guilty of breaking the entire law. Okay? Um, so when somebody makes assertions like this regarding the law, they don't understand what the law is demanding, and they, do, and they misunderstand what the law is for. The purpose of the law, according to Scripture, is to convict us of our sin. It, no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God through his law keeping, and that's where the problem is, and the reason why James, or Zach, sorry, the reason why you're feeling, you're, you're questioning, you're you're not so sure of your salvation, is because this guy, this this pastor dude, who I would basically say probably sounds very pietistic um, and legalistic, um, is pointing you to the law for your assurance of your salvation rather than to the cross. And yet, the New Testament scriptures would point you to the cross for your assurance of salvation, not to the law, okay because when you look to the law for the assurance of your salvation, um you are either going to despair because you realize that you don't keep it and by the way repentance by the way the the Greek word metanoia understand this it it really under- it's understood as a change of mind okay and when you think about the ultimate change of mind, human beings by nature think that they're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Anyone who isn't in prison is generally a good person. I'm not a bad person. I, you know, I'm, you know, I obviously I'm not perfect. That I, you know, I have my faults, but I'm not a wretched sinner, right? Uh, repentance would basically look like um, holy guacamole. I'm a wretched sinner in need of a Savior, that I have no righteousness of my own, and if I have to stand before God and give an accounting of all my sins, I'm not going to be able to stand, you know? So repentance is one of constantly recognizing your sinfulness and your need for a Savior. It's agreeing with God that you are a sinner and agreeing with God that the only solution for your sin problem is Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what happens for Christians, and this is important, sanctification is a very interesting thing that happens in the life of a Christian. Christians do good works because of what they are. Sinners sin because they're sinful by nature. Christians do good works because God has turned them from a goat into a sheep, has indwelled them That person with the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin and is working to curb the appetite of sin in their life, is working to convict them of the sins that they commit. And ultimately, what happens is, is that the life of a Christian is one of somebody who humbly wakes up every day, realizing that he's a wretched sinner in need of a Savior, has done nothing to earn his salvation, but looks only to Christ alone for his salvation, takes up his cross, considers himself to be as good as a dead man, and follows Jesus.
1: You know, I keep on thinking of a very good book that's probably under 10 bucks that has a great—talks about the Ten Commandments Uh and commentary.
0: Oh, would you be thinking about the Small Catechism? I would. Luther's Small Catechism. You know what I'll do is I'll put a link up to Luther's Small Catechism um, uh, uh, at the end of today's show because it's online. If you want to preempt me and don't have to go to fightingforthefaith.com, you can go to bookofconcord.org and click on the link for Luther's Small Catechism. And that's the wonderful thing about Luther's catechism is it, it runs through the basics of the Christian faith by looking at the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Lord's Prayer, the, basically the chief things that, you know, and, it, and it, it starts off with the law. And it's a wonderful little book because it teaches you to examine your life in light of the law and, and, and to show you your need for a Savior. So, but now let me, let me add a little bit more comforting stuff to this. When we come back from the break, I'm going to uh, continue answering Zach's email regarding this by take, having him take a look at the apostle Paul and what he's written regarding this. And, um, and you know, so we, 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 can hopefully get him to stop looking to the, uh, to the law as to determining whether or not he's a Christian. Because if we look to the law and that's, uh, am I a Christian and I'm looking at God's law? Well, maybe I'm not today. <laughs> Uh, that that that's uh, that's an exercise in in futility uh, or that could lead to despair. So, if you'd like to email us regarding anything you've heard on today's program so far, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back.
3: Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Nobody expects a purpose-driven Inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Damn, I can't say it. You'll have to say it.
3: Uh, What?
2: You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are.
3: Uh, I I couldn't do that.
0: I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition.
3: Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do our chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision okay and- okay
2: stop stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose blah, blah 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 youth pastor rick read the charges dude you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program that's enough now how do you plead well,
0: we're, we're innocent, innocent. Ha,
2: ha, 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 ha. we'll soon change your mind about that
0: We're back and you are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. In the middle of helping uh, Zach out so that he doesn't despair about his Christianity. Ran into a guy who basically says he barely sins at all. (laughs) And I say he doesn't understand what God's law demands from us. Um, okay, coming back to my point, uh, Zach, again, let me reiterate something here, and that is is that you don't look to the law to provide you with assurance of salvation. The purpose of the law is to show you your sin. And I would refer you to Romans chapter 3. I Go, go back and read the whole chapter. In fact, start at the uh, beginning of Romans chapter 3 and keep on reading all the way through Romans chapter 8. Uh, if you want to get the full impact of what's going on there but it's clear from romans chapter you know from romans as well as from the entire uh letter to the uh, galatian churches the epistle to the galatians that uh the law cannot save you it was never intended to save you it won't save you but let me provide you with some assurance here and that is is that your salvation is not dependent upon your law keeping it's not period it's dependent on christ's law keeping And last time I read in scriptures, Christ kept the law perfectly for you. And his righteousness is given to you as a gift when you have faith. And faith itself is a gift. So God, let me go back to the syllogism here uh, that this guy messed up in. It says, God cannot be in the presence of sin. I agree. Uh, So if you sin, you're not with him. I disagree. Okay. Uh, And here's the reason why is because I'm covered by Christ's righteousness. So God doesn't see me as sinner. He sees me as saint. And anybody who trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, that, right, that faith, that trust is counted to them as righteousness. They're given the righteousness of Christ as a gift. So God doesn't see you as sinner. He sees you saint, as saint. And in this lifetime, we Christians get to walk out a very schizophrenic Christianity. Because there's two things that are operating that are absolutely true and in the uh, the latin phrase for it is simul justus et peccator that is is that you are simultaneously justified that means that you are declared to be righteous by jesus christ through jesus christ and his work and you you're, you still sin okay so uh what happens is in this lifetime it's a now and not yet and which is one of the reasons why our great hope is in the resurrection right we are looking forward to Christ being revealed because he's going to bring all of the dead saints back with him when he returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead and we will meet him in the air if we're here at the time when he returns and we will be transformed. We will no longer have these bodies of sin that we are that 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 still have to die that still sin, but we will be given literally we will be resurrected from the dead with new bodies and we're the soul sin problem done. Okay. But in this lifetime, much travail, much to do because why we, we right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. And faith is this trust that clings to the promises of the cross, clings to the promises of Jesus Christ, the promises of the gospel laid out in the scriptures, um, knowing that Christ has not been revealed yet in glory, yet he will be knowing that our sins are completely forgiven in him, even if we don't feel like it. Because what was he doing on the cross? Oh, yeah, he was dying for our sins. Now, a little bit of a side note here. A Lutheran, uh, a good confessional Lutheran, would also point you to your baptism. Okay, And there's a reason why. is because Lutherans don't view a baptism as something that you do. It's something that God does to you. Okay, And so I would, I would point you back to your baptism, Zach, and say, "In your baptism, according to Scripture, you were, your sins were washed away, your sins were forgiven, you were buried with Christ, you were raised with Christ, your heart was circumcised by Christ, and those are all things that happen to you outside of yourself. So when you're despairing of your faith, you need to look outside of you, not with inside of you, not inside. You look outside. And the nice thing about uh, – a good understanding about baptism is that baptism is gospel. It's not law. There, and so I would say, Zach, you're baptized. Christ has washed away your sins. You were buried with Christ and you were raised with him. I, I think it was a Reverend Swirla who said uh,
1: in Christ's baptism – I mean in our baptism we were cleaned. Yeah. And in Christ's baz- baptism he took upon – yeah,
0: uh, exactly. Like a big sponge so. soaking up all the sin out of the Jordan River. So he he took upon our sins, and we were freed from our sins. Right, exactly. I, I love that. Yeah. How I went that. Yep. So uh, that being the case, okay. Let me let me give you an example of a mature Christian. Uh, John, real quick here. Um, do you think the Apostle Paul would qualify as a mature Christian? I yes, I would I mean, say that. Considering yeah. he wrote like vast quantities of the New Testament, right? Um, he, I think he qualifies. Yes. Okay. So he's not some kind of a fly-by-night, um, shallow. What, what's the word they use? Um, backslidden, um, uh, carnal Christian. I would say not. Okay. So you would think Paul you know, what's the term they use nowadays on fire for the Lord? Yeah. Yeah, I I think he he definitely counts as being in that in that uh that status. Let's read what the apostle Paul writes about himself regarding <clears throat> his sinful nature. We read from Romans chapter 7 starting at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. He, by the way, he's writing in the present tense there. He's not talking in past tense. He's talking about himself the way he is or was at the time he was writing this letter. Okay. He says, so for instance, okay, let's let, let me give you an example of present tense. I am currently overweight. I am overweight. That's present tense. Okay. Now it may be that, uh, that a year from now I can say I am now at a healthy weight. I'm no longer overweight, Right. OK, the thing is, is that if you're listening to this podcast, be it uh, in February of 2009 when it was recorded, or if you're listening a year from now, at the time that it was recorded in present tense, I can say I am overweight. OK, and no one could say, Chris, you're lying because look at you now. You, you're you just so skinny and, and healthy. Well, that's that I'm dreaming. <sighs> OK, the point is, is that. When you're writing in present tense or speaking in present tense, you're talking about a present reality. This whole section here in Romans 7 is written in present tense, which means at the time that Paul was writing it, this is what he viewed about himself, which, by the way, was true. And, it, and what he's writing about himself is true not only about him, but also us. This is where we get this concept of that Latin, simile, justus et peccator, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin; for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. Now, if I do what is what i don 't want to do, I agree with the law that it is good, so is no longer I who do it, but the sins that, sin that dwells in me. for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what 's right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but I do the evil that I don't want. That's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, uh, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> it's Jesus, anyways. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I, so that then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Does that sound like a guy who's at war with himself? Yeah, that's the that's the that's the great struggle that we Christians have. And you'll find Zach that as you mature in the Christian faith. You might even get to the point where you are just tired of your sin, and you're, and you're you're you 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 almost to the point almost despise your own life because of how sinful you are, and that's not a bad place to be. And here's the deal: as far as progress and sanctification, stop looking to that as if that determines whether or not you're Christian. Okay, your neighbor will see your sanctification. Keep your eye focused on God's law to convict you of your sin. Focus on the gospel to comfort you and offer you the forgiveness of your sins and let the holy spirit do the pruning and the and the and the growing in your life he'll discipline you he'll grow you he'll do what's necessary to grow you in the faith and to curb your sin and believe me it's one of those things that's a very painful and difficult thing that to go through and uh you will not be perfect in this lifetime not even close that doesn't mean you have a license to sin no The Christian life is one of repentance. Let me give you another verse. We'll we'll throw out some verses here. Here, Uh, First Timothy chapter one. We're going to uh, read verses uh, twelve through seventeen, I believe. Yep. Um, Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, I I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chief but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever. Amen. So Paul says he's the chief of sinners. Okay. So, uh, you sinners out there who know you're sinning and you're repenting Asking for forgiveness and receiving Christ and looking to Christ for your your mercy and forgiveness, not your own in your sanctification. That's not going to tell you much. But instead, of you're looking to Christ. You're in good. You're in good company. Now, does it say Paul was
1: uh, Paul, a chief of sinners.
0: <laughs> I am. The, I am present, yeah, present, present tense again. Yeah, that's yes. so That's the problem. Is is that you know he keeps talking like he's a sinner. Again, Christ came to save sinners, not the righteous. So if you are already righteous and you're already keeping the law pretty you don't need Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is for losers. And I mean that literally because that's what I am. Okay, so let me let me take a look at from a, another angle. From Philippians chapter three. Okay, Paul in talking about his righteousness rather than his sin, okay, you want to talk about somebody who racked up some good works according to the Mosaic Law, which by the way, let's let's get this out in the open. If you're going to think that you're really righteous, then don't just sit there and focus on the Ten Commandments. Get out the entire Mosaic Law and get busy. I mean, there's plenty for you to do. <laughs> okay, lots and lots and lots of stuff that you should be doing according to the Mosaic Law, and uh, it's the only real game in town. There's no other law that by which we can uh, say that we're saved, or not saved, but that that we're, that, that was given by God, right? Okay, so whether or not you're following a twelve step program or you know the five pillars of Islam or seven, depending on which brand of Muslim you are, those that doesn't tell us nothing. Mormonism, nah. The Mosaic Law—that's where the game is at when it comes to the law. Let's listen to Paul's righteousness in accordance with the law and what he thought of his good law keeping. Okay, we read from Philippians chapter three. He says, "Watch out for those dogs, those uh, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh." He's talking about the circumcision crowd, the guys who are coming along and saying, unless you're circumcised, you're not saved. Um, he calls them dogs. You know, These are the self-righteous Pharisee types that you know who claim to be Christians and claim that unless you're keeping the law, you're not really a Christian. Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in, in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The person who says that they're not sinning very often and that they're pretty much keeping it, that, that's a person who's putting a lot of confidence in the flesh. Sorry, that's true. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Those are pretty good credentials. Why isn't he sticking to that? Okay, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of those good works according to the law, he counts them as rubbish, trash, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. So Paul, I mean, if anyone had credentials as to law-keeping, he was blameless under the law, and he considers that to be rubbish, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is of faith by faith in Jesus Christ. You can't do better than Jesus's righteousness. And that's what's given to you as a gift by faith. And here's the fun part. You believe that. You trust that. If God has given you faith and you trust in that, then you know what's going to happen? Good works will follow. They can't help but follow because you've been transformed from the inside. You've been given, uh, your heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. You've gone from being a goat into being a sheep. You've gone from being a bad tree to being a good tree. You've gone from being a branch that is disconnected from Christ, that one that is grafted into Christ. How could you not do good works? Okay? Which, by the way, is a good segment to talk about uh, February's uh, Book of the Month for uh, Pirate Christian Radio. It's Matt Harrison's book, Christ Have Mercy, and I'm telling you, in, in contemporary books out there, there isn't a better book that talks about how to put your faith into action and why you put it into action and how it's put into action. Great book, Matt Harrison's book, uh, Christ Have Mercy. It's available at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the, uh, the the cover that's on the front on the homepage, and if if it's after February 2009, just go into the the PCR store. Click on it. It's a great book. And it's analog. It's not, di- it's not digital. So, you know, it's, it's an old fashioned book. We have to actually mail it to you.
1: And you get to touch it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a touchy feely book. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Zach, stop looking to yourself, look to Christ. Stop looking inward at your law-keeping as to whether or not you're a Christian and look to Christ. Christ died for all of your sins. You don't have your own righteousness anymore. You have Christ's righteousness given to you as a gift. You are now set free from sin and set free from uh, the law so that you can do good works for your neighbor in love, not because you have to, because you get to. How could you not? You don't have to worry about God sitting there with a big stick thumping you on the head all the time. Instead, you have a merciful, kind, and loving God, and because you know that, you can do good works, and you can do them out of pure love for your neighbor because you don't have to worry about filling up a star chart and having to measure up because you already measure up in Christ because Christ died for your sins. All of them, Zach. Every single one of them. So there. That's all I have to say about it. Okay, moving on to the... uh, Got an email from a gal named Samantha, 16-year-old gal from Georgia. She says, Dear Mr. Roethlisberger. Ooh, good one. Now, where is she she from? She's obviously not seen me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has like, like that Pittsburgh connection. Yeah, apparently, no, but well, I think she—that was just you know because we just got done with the whole Super Bowl. Oh, okay. And uh, Samantha, I, I want to say this: uh, Roethlisberger is athletic. Mister Nosebro is not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, paddling my my kayak in the ocean is still not athletic enough. Let's just put it that way. Anyway, she says, my name is Samantha, I'm from Georgia, I'm 16, and I was listening to your podcast on being pro-life under a pro-choice president, and I thought it was so great. The first part about how God might count our sins by seconds or milliseconds nearly brought tears to my eyes. See, that's the law doing its work, by the way. I've never thought of it that way, and it makes what Jesus did on the cross so much more than I can even fathom and think that even in eternity we will not come to a full understanding of his love makes me so happy and grateful. Right, that's the thing. When you really understand how wretchedly sinful you are and the debt that you've racked up through your rebellion and sin, you you don't understand the sweetness of the gospel until you really understand just how desperate your situation is. You have absolutely nothing, nothing to offer God as far as your own self-righteousness. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. You are rotten to the core. And the sins that you've racked up, you don't even—we uh, don't even realize the depth of the magnitude of our debt to God. I think we only see the tip of the iceberg, and I think if if Christ were to allow us just to feel the full weight of our sin for even a second, it would crush us. That's just my opinion, you know. So anyway, but the answer—but here's the deal: when you do understand that you're sinning against God constantly, that makes the gospel that much sweeter. It really does. And you know, we—we we can we ah oh, we do these great works we do these good works because we can it's just this i don't have to i get to do these good things how could i not anyway she says um another thing about the podcast that really struck me was uh, john piper talking about abortion I love Mr. Piper. That would be Pastor Piper to you, (laughs) ma'am. And he says, I think he's one of the most outspoken members of the true church on on the topic. I wish that someone would write a letter to President Obama like the one he was describing. I'm sure that's happened. (laughs) Um, I'm sure uh, President Obama gets all kinds of emails, including really good ones, or mail from people. She says... Surely then Obama would see how disgusting the thing is that he is supporting is. That's the problem is, is that he doesn't see how disgusting the thing that he is supporting is, and so our our prayer for President Obama needs to be one where God would open his eyes and give him and grant him repentance. That's really our prayer for uh, President Obama, and we do that not only for his sake, but also for the sake of all of the unborn infants that are going to be murdered through his policies and his expansion of of of, of abortion. So um, she's, she says, I will respect President Obama unlike some following the example of David and when Saul was king, but I find many things about his presidency already that I absolutely hate. Now, I agree. And this is a good point. This is where I thought that she showed quite a bit of biblical wisdom. You remember, uh, Saul is, is uh, anointed king, and um, he immediately when God tells him to do something, Saul just has his own agenda and doesn't obey God and, and doesn't do what God instructs him to do over and over and over again. And finally the, the prophet Samuel, God gets a phone call from the, from uh, Saul, Samuel gets a pro- phone call from God, basically saying, I'm, I'm done with Saul. And this unthinkable thing happens. And it, it th- I want you to put yourself in David's shoes for a second. Samuel is sent to, uh, to David's family and uh, David is, you know, eventually brought to him and David is anointed to be the king of Israel. There's one problem, though. There's already a king on the throne. Okay. So here you've got Saul on the throne and you've got David, who's also been anointed by God. And we learn as the story unfolds that, uh, you know, David and Saul, you know, they have quite a bit of contact with each other. Saul gets to the point where he hates David and wants to kill him and so you read these stories you know in in the old testament where saul is hunting david to kill him right and on two occasions two occasions david had the ability to slit paul's throat one uh, not paul but saul saul one in one occasion saul was in a cave Um, We'll euphemistically say he was relieving himself. He was using the cave as a latrine. And it just so happened that Dave and some of his men were hiding in the back of the cave and Saul wasn't aware of it. So while Saul was relieving himself in the cave, David crawled up really close to the point where he could have he could have taken Saul's life. Right. (laughs) And. Instead, he cuts off a little piece of uh, of his cloak, you know a little piece of it. And, and so Saul leaves the cave, not even knowing that his life was in danger and David 's men are really mad at him you there he was, you had it to you could have killed him. why didn't you take his life right And David basically says, "How can I kill god 's anointed right I mean, here was this wicked evil, disobedient king who was trying to murder David, nobody would have thought the less of David if David had taken his life. Nobody would have said, nope, that wasn't the right thing to do, right? And yet he didn't do it. And this happened not once, but twice, okay? And so David respects the office that Saul held as being given to to Saul by God, and that's why he didn't take Saul's life and i think there's something to be learned from that a little bit here. here we've got this president that uh, i don't like his policies one bit. you know, i'll make no bones about it. um, you know, i i'm not thrilled with uh, the the upcoming socialism that's going to uh, hit our nation or i'm sorry, the united states because we got a lot of listeners overseas. i'm not very i'm not thrilled about it at all. i, I despise his policies on uh, on abortion, and yet i 'm compelled to pray for him and respect the office that he holds, understanding that that no no leader gets to office without really god 's approval and some leaders are blessings, and some leaders are judgments from God. Keep that in mind so anyway, um, Samantha, I just again showed quite a little, quite a bit of biblical wisdom referencing uh, David and Saul. Um, she says, I have two questions for you. First, I was wondering if you could put the ebook book Christianity and Liberalism on iTunes because I have a bunch of gift cards and uh, wouldn't have to spend actual money. <laughs> uh, it, answer to your question, Samantha. is uh, We don't have the ability to put it on iTunes for sale, but I'll tell you what. Because this is such a good email and you show wisdom beyond your years, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link so that you can download it. it, it, it it's on me. <laughs> so – yeah, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put the money in uh, for you to uh, PCR's account. Anyway, she says, uh, my family does uh, – uh, she says, secondly, I remember you talking about a, a Polish Catholic person. That would be my grandfather was Polish Catholic. My grandmother was Irish Catholic. And I was talking about my grandmother's Polish Catholic funeral for this Irish Catholic lady. That was a oh, – that was a miserable funeral. She says, my whole family is Polish Catholic, and I was wondering what the best way is to witness to a Catholic. okay. My family doesn 't know that i 've turned from Catholicism. i 've been praying about this for months, but i 'm still so afraid that my family will flat out reject me. It was pointed out to me uh, that Penn from Penn and Teller, yes, the atheist said that if you actually believe the people are going to hell because they don 't believe in Jesus Christ and how much hate it must take to withhold the truth from them that 's actually a direct quote from uh, uh, from I think it's Gillette is his name. I, I got it. I, I pulled it up on YouTube. Tell you what, we'll pause here. We'll take a break, and when we come back, um, we'll uh, I'll actually play Penn uh quote here that she's quoting. Again, this guy. I, I, she doesn't sound sixteen to me. She sounds like she's definitely older than that. Uh, either that or uh, when I was sixteen, I was just a complete doofus because I was not this wise. <laughs> maybe it's this. Maybe it's the last one. Right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back.
3: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
3: My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology made accessible.
0: All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I am Chris Rosebro want to remind you, fighting for the faith is listener-supported. That means we depend on you to pay our bills. So if you are growing in Christ, growing in your understanding of Christianity, sound doctrine, how to defend the Christian faith, then we need you to support us. And you can do so a couple of ways. Number one, you can write a check. Fighting for the faith at Post Office Box 791, San Juan Capistrano, California, zip code 92693. Or you can just visit us online at uh, fightingforthefaith.com and click on the donate button, and uh, that will also help support us. Again, we appreciate all of you who are supporting us and helping to pay our bills, and uh, would like to ask all of you uh, to consider doing the same. Get, let me get back to my email here uh, from Samantha from Georgia, a 16-year-old girl who has a really good understanding of the scriptures. Um, she's been talking about the fact that she's got a Catholic family and wants to know the best way to witness to a, a Catholic. But she's ta- She brought up uh, Pen Uh He has a YouTube video that's out there, and um, Pen Gillette, In case you don't know, he's a pen and teller, and he is uh, he's he's an avowed atheist. He he knows that there's not a god. At least that's what he says. And he said something very interesting. There's a YouTube video. I'll put a link up to it at FightingForTheFaith.com, where he talks about receiving a gift of a Bible. And so uh, let me play that segment for you uh, without any further ado so that you can uh, hear what he said, because he makes a very interesting point. It's
4: called crackle. Hang on a second here. Here we go. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show and at the end of the show, uh, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position. After I was all done, big guy, probably about my age, big guy, and um, he had been the um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the. Or the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, I, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it and, I wanted it. and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? uh, Psalms from the New... Just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it. And I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, It was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy.
0: All right, I'm going to stop there because he, he rambles on. If you want to hear the rest of the story, I'll link to the video at uh, fightingforthefaith.com. But he makes a good point. If you really believe in heaven and hell, you believe that, that, there are, that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that those who do not trust in Christ for their salvation um, are going to be judged... And spend eternity in hell. Uh, Penn Gillette here asks the question: How much do you have to hate a person to not tell them the truth? Which I think is a is a profound question. And uh, well, this this was what uh, Samantha was re- referencing in her email. And so let me come back now to her question. She says, "What is the best way to witness to a uh, witness to a Catholic?" I'm going to say the best way to witness to people, period, regardless of whether they're Catholic. Mormon uh, Buddhist uh, atheist, or whatever is to exalt Christ, crucified for our sins. Now, um I've spent some time in Catholicism, and I can tell you that there's some thing there's some areas that apologetically you can help a person detach from the Pope and the Vatican as far as their interpretation of Scripture. And that, and or their, or their doctrines, and that is just to point them to scripture. But ultimately, um, where you want to spend your time with anybody is doing law and gospel. And the one thing about Catholicism is that it's a works based law religion, okay, which basically teaches that uh, when you're baptized, you know, you all of your sins are forgiven up until that point, and then you are in a state of grace. And that it's your job to uh, not commit any mortal sins and confess your venial sins uh, until you die. And if you achieve uh, perfection in this lifetime, few do, or sainthood in this in this lifetime, and few do, then you get to go straight to heaven. But if you don't get to that point, then you're going to go to purgatory and uh, basically burn off the rest of your uh, of your Catholic karma. In, in however, you know thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years in purgatory until you're worthy enough to, uh, to enter, uh, heaven. It's a, it's a wretched religion. It works based religion and a terrible twisting of, of the, of Christianity. Um, what you basically do is you do the law with them and you do it hard. How are you doing on that mortal venial sin thing? I, I mean, have you done enough good works? I mean, are you, are you going to, are you going to make it? How do you know when you've done enough? Ask the tough law questions. And what I would recommend for you, Samantha, is um, when I send you the link to uh, Christianity and liberalism, I'm going to send you a link to another document, actually two documents. One's called the Augsburg Confession, and the other one's called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And the one I really want you to focus on, I want you to start with the Augsburg Confession, but I want you to focus in on the second one, which is the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Um... The reason why is because the, the, that document, especially the, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, was written in the crucible of a, of a debate on Roman Catholicism. And it's it, the context of that document is written against the, the works righteousness of Catholicism, and it's written in such a way that Catholics or anybody who spent some time in the Catholic Church can readily understand the arguments that are being made biblically, and you can and you can work your way through that. And what you should do is glean from that, especially the article in the Augs, uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession about justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That one's going to help you and give you a good grounding, in uh, a, a good biblical grounding and apologetic a strategy for uh, not arguing for argument's sake, but uh, engaging your Catholic family in uh, discussion regarding this. And you also pointed out that in uh, Matthew ten thirty six in your email, you pointed out that it says that Jesus said that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Understand um, that the cost of doing this might be that you lose your relationship with your family. They might become angry with you, and while you're a minor living in their household, they might— Uh, you know, put the hurt on you as far as what you're listening to, what you're reading and what you're doing or where you're going to church or whatever it is that, you know, because they're going to become alarmed by the things that you're saying. Um, That's, uh, that's if Christ doesn't grant them repentance and, you know, and, and help turn them around, but pray. And confidently open up the scriptures to them, law and gospel, and take a look at, at how the, uh, the Lutheran reformers in the apology of the Augsburg confession argued for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They'll give you a good, good, uh, underpinning for, uh, what the work that you need to do. And also Samantha, thanks for putting your email on, uh, on what it looks like a treasure map. I've got a digital treasure map that she put this on. So great email. Great, great email. Wow. All right. I'm going to watch our time. I don't think we're going to get to our dark night sermon today and people are going, yay. <laughs> just watching the time here. Um, I, I want to do a little bit of news. Um, got this news out of uh, the uh, out of out of Great Britain, the Telegraph in the UK. Nurse suspended for offering to pray for elderly patients' recovery. <laughs> Subtitle reads: A nurse has been suspended from her job for offering to pray for an elderly patient's recovery from illness. Uh, this is by Andrew Alderson, who's the chief reporter for the Telegraph in the United Kingdom, and uh, the story reads. Um, Caroline Petrie, a committed Christian, has been accused by her employers of failing to demonstrate a, quote, personal and professional commitment to equality and diversity. She's sinned against political correctness, in other words. Um, She faces disciplinary action and could lose her job over the incident. Mrs. Petrie, a married mother of two, says she has been left shocked and upset by the action taken against her. She insists she has never forced her own religious beliefs on anyone, but politely inquired if the elderly patient in question wanted her to pray for her, either in the woman's presence or after the nurse had left the patient's home. Quote, I simply couldn't believe that I have been suspended over this. I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. All I'm trying to do is help my patients, many of whom want me to pray for them, she said. Mrs. Petrie, who's 45, is a community nurse employed by North East Somerset Primary Care Trust to care to carry out home visits to sick and elderly patients. The incident which led to her suspension took place at a home of a woman patient in Wiscombe, uh, North Somerset. Um, I, may, I think I pronounced that wrong, but who cares? I was uh, it was around lunchtime, and I had spent about 20 to 25 minutes with her. I had applied dressings to her legs, and shortly before I I left, I said to her, would you like me to pray for you? She said, no, thank you. And I said, okay. I only offered to pray for her because I was concerned for her welfare and wanted her to get better. However, after the incident on December 15th, she was contacted by the trust and asked to explain her actions. The woman patient, who is believed to be in her late 70s, is understood to have complained to the trust. Mrs. Petrie will not disclose the woman's name or reveal the precise nature of her ailment because that would be a breach, a breach of patient confidentiality. Mrs. Petrie, uh, Petrie, uh, who lived lives in West Weston Supermar North Somerset, said she was initially confronted the next day by a nursing sister, who said that the patient had been taken aback by her question about prayer. I said. I'm sorry, did I offend or upset her? The sister said, no, 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 she was just a bit taken back. You must be aware of your professional code of conduct. I would be careful. But the next day, my coordinator left a message on my home phone, and I realized this had been taken further. Mrs. Petrie said that she often, she often offers to pray for her patients, that, they, that many take her up on it. She either prays with them or after she has left their home. The nurse has been a committed Christian since she was 10 after her mother died of breast cancer. Initially, she was Church of England, but she switched to the Baptist faith nine years ago. My faith is very important to me, she said. Mrs. Petrie had previously been reprimanded for an incident in uh, Cleveland in last October where she offered to give a small homemade prayer card to an elderly male patient who had happily accepted it. On this occasion, the patient's carer who was with him raised concerns over the incident. Allison Withers, Mrs. Petrie's boss at the time, wrote to her at the end of November saying, As a nurse, you are required to uphold the reputation of your profession. Your NMC, Nursing Midwifery Council, code states that you must demonstrate a personal and professional commitment to equality and diversity, and you must not use your professional status to promote causes that are not related to health. In the letter, Mrs. Petrie, who qualified as a nurse in 1985, was asked to attend an equality and diversity course and warned if there is any further similar incident and may be treated as potential misconduct and the formal disciplinary procedure could be instigated. Mrs. Petrie said, I stopped handing out prayer cards after that, but I found it more and more difficult not to offer them. My concern is for the person as a whole, not just their health. I was told not to force my faith on anyone, but I could respond if patients themselves brought up the subject of religion. It is the second incident, the, the offer to pray for a patient that led to the disciplinary action. She was suspended for her part-time job without pay on December 17th. So apparently, this woman is a criminal. Now, I mean, I mean, let's just stone her. I mean, <laughs> holy guacamole. I, I'm offering to pray for somebody now could get you to lose your job. And I think this is a sign of uh, a sign of the times. And the problem here is is that the thing that's become God is political correctness. You know here this woman is being literally singled out uh castigated, disciplined, and you know, some kind of a religious nut because all she offered to do was pray for a sick lady. Wow, when did offering a prayer become criminal? When did it become contrary to um, diversity, and why is diversity uh inequality? The way they're defined, apparently, equality and diversity means we don't want to hear about your religion. Don't don't bring God into it. I, I might be sick and dying, but don't you dare offer to pray for me. That's a crime now that could cause you to lose your job. Sad. Very, very sad. Hm. Alright, we're going to switch gears here. Watch our time here. We're definitely not going to get to the Dark Night sermon. We'll have to do it tomorrow. And I know that a lot of you are just crushed. <laughs> We're not going to get to this Dark Night sermon. But we got more important things to do at the moment. We need to uh, go into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, and we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, th- again, this is not an exercise in Chris's theological prowess. Hardly that at all. Instead, It's just, again, to hear the gospel story, to hear what Christ has done and and to familiarize yourself with these stories, internalize it, hear it, wash yourself in it so that you can teach it, read it to your family, to your friends, to yourself, uh, to your children, to your wife, to your spouse, you know, again, make yourself comfortable with it, confident in it. And great stuff in here. So I'm going to start at Mark chapter 6, verse 1. I know that last week I I read uh, verses 7 through 13, but I'm going to reread them anyway, because I want to keep this all in the flow of the story. And it says this, uh, "'Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. "'His disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, "'and many who heard him were astonished, saying, "'Where did this man get these things?' Now, before I go any farther, I want to point something out here. Jesus is in his hometown. These are the people who saw him working in his father's carpentry shop. They knew Mary. They know Jesus' brothers. Um, they know his family. And um, what's the issue here? No faith. A complete lack of faith. Uh, what's, what, what's their big stumbling block? The offense of the Incarnation. God in human flesh. Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's speaking as one who has authority. And they're going, isn't this, oh, wait a second, how can he, where did he get these things? And they, They've heard about his miracles. They heard of, his reputation has preceded them. And so they say, where did this man get these things? What is this, What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What's the offense? It's the offense of the incarnation, God in human flesh. Jesus is performing miracles, speaking with authority. And they don't have faith. Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without a prophet is not without honor, except for in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own household." Remember earlier we had read how his mother and brother thought that he was a loony. They wanted to do a fifty-one-fifty with him. <clears throat> so Jesus could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their lack, or their, their lack of faith, or their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed oil uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. We continue. Then King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Again, another form of unbelief if you think about it. Another form of lack of faith. But others said, well, he's Elijah. Another said, well, he's a prophet, like one of the old the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Apparently um, uh, John the Baptist uh, understood God's law. And he was uh, pro-God's vision or view of uh, marriage here. And notice, this isn't a homosexual marriage. This is a heterosexual marriage. You would think that he would have no problem with this. But apparently, since uh, it wasn't lawful for Herod to have his brother's wife, John, who preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins, um, preached the law to Herod and Herodias. And Herodias nursed a grudge against him for the favor And it says this, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. That's a great thing to do, isn't it? By the way, preaching the law sometimes will have that effect on people. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. That must be one great dance. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Is it me, or does that just sound foolish? Anyway, um, little side note here. Uh Jehovah's Witnesses use this passage as saying that this proves that God doesn't want us to celebrate birthdays. Uh, it doesn't say that in the text, but see, there's two passages in Scripture where terrible things happen on a birthday. One is in Pharaoh's birthday, as recorded in the book of Genesis, uh, re, uh, re, Joseph uh, <laughs> It told, you know, interpreted a dream as it pertained to uh, Herod's birthday, and someone lost their head. And see, this is only the second time in Scripture that birthdays are mentioned in both times that a birthday is mentioned in Scripture. Somebody loses their life. So that must mean that God doesn't want us to celebrate birthdays. That's ridiculous. That's how the Jehovah's Witnesses argue, by the way. And it's a dumb argument because uh, where there is no clear instruction or for prohibition from God, there is no sin what they're doing is they're 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 interpreting this in a very legalistic allegorical way if you would and it doesn't help anyway so Herodias' daughter went out and said to her mother for what should i ask and she said the head of john the baptist and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner uh, with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison. Absolutely tragic. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And his disciples heard of it, and they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Notice that Jesus here is caring a little bit about their ability to kind of spend, take a little time off. The one who made the Sabbath day himself, Jesus, the day of rest, He's concerned about the, you know, his, his apostles getting a little bit of rest and and a little bit of time away from the demands of their ministry. And it says this in verse 33. Now, many saw them going and going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. (laughs) Oh, so much. So And so when when he went ashore, he saw a great cr- crowd, and Jesus had compassion on them. He had you know, on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass And they sat in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up into heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. It doesn't count. The women were eating there too, but they counted the men. They thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It's I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We'll pick up more of that tomorrow. Good stories. Just amazing stuff. This is history. This is true. What we're reading here. This actually took place. The eyewitnesses to these stories recorded them for us, and they're there for our edification, for our building up, for the proclamation of the gospel, to proclaim Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins in him. Who is this guy that can walk on water, turn, take a couple of sandwiches and a fish, and a couple of fish and feed 5,000 men with it, not counting the women and children? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? He's none other than the one true God in human flesh, and he's come to save us. And I mean that in all of the ways it could possibly be meant. He's bought us through his blood, redeemed us, purchased us. He's saving us. All of your sins are forgiven in him. All of the wickedness that you've committed, repent, turn, and believe the gospel. Good, good news. All right, talking about the Word of God here. Uh, last week we talked about Tony Jones and the Emergent Church and his uh, denial of original sin. And, you know, he was going to go on uh, Todd Friel's radio program, Wretched Radio, and uh, they ended up putting that off for a couple of weeks so that uh, so that Tony can study up a little bit more on it. He's uh, not so quick in pushing, putting out uh, papers on the doctrine of uh, of original sin on his blog. He's kind of slowed the pace down a little bit. Um, but, uh, one of the things I pointed out is, is that in his own writing, he exalts his experiences and, um, and really undermines the, the word of God by basically saying, well, I believe it's truthful, but it's not factual. That's a problem. And, uh, I want to, uh, play for you something from Brian McLaren. And, uh, last year about this time, Brian McLaren uh, made an appearance at the National Cathedral and he was talking about um, the postmodern way of understanding things, and uh, I'm absolutely convinced that we've been sold a bill of goods by Brian McLaren and the emergent church as far as their their rendering of history. And what I want to do in this uh, segment here, hang on a second, is I want to. Um, uh, I want you to listen carefully to what Brian McLaren is talking about and how the Word of God is to be handled, and, uh, or at least understood by postmoderns. And the audio quality isn't that good. I'm going to try to boost the bass up a little bit because it sounds a little bit tinny uh, because uh, the, the way the the microphones picked up his voice, it sounded like he was echoing off the walls in the, in the uh, National Cathedral. But uh, again, I really want you to pay real close attention to what he's talking about. How uh, postmoderns understand uh, the scriptures as opposed to somebody who's – where modernism has uh, impacted their their view of scriptures and watch what he's attacking and we're going to actually do a little comparative work in the scriptures themselves too on this and so without any further ado let's uh, let's hear Brian McLaren at the uh, National Cathedral. Thank
1: you. movement
5: happening somewhere along the lines of the evangelical tradition that's beginning to touch just about every part of the Christian church. Yes, you know, uh, my my friend Phyllis Tickle has an interesting uh, kind of scenario. She says about every 500 years, the Christian church has a rummage sale, that it sorts through all of its treasures and decides to leave some behind and decides others are worth keeping and then it kind of moves forward. And so I actually think something is happening around the world. I think in the global south, we use more the word post-colonial. We figure out what it means to be post-colonial Christians. And in the global north, there are a lot of other post words: post-modern, post-enlightenment, even post-Christendom in some ways. And and so there's big changes going on here in the the U.S. This, I think, is a phenomenon that began in in the 1990s with some mostly evangelicals, although there have been mainline folks, and pretty soon, pretty quickly, Catholic folks involved very early on. And and they were realizing something that really, I think, is just going to hit the public media, really, this year. And that is some pretty disturbing statistics about the dropout rates of young adults. And when people started paying attention, uh, by the way, this is a lot of mega church pastors, and one thing is that megachurch mega folks do really well is they count people. And uh, they were counting and noticed that between 18 and 35 or 18 and 40, there was a big demographic dip in their church attendance. So when people started paying attention to this, they started realizing that there was a lot going on. It wasn't just superficial issues of style. Musical style, or preaching style, or leadership style—although those were part of the picture—but they started realizing that there were deeper issues going on. Shifts in the way we believe, shifts in the way we understand our faith in relation to other faiths.
0: Alright going to stop here for a second. Just listen really carefully to what he's talking about here. He's telling a story, a meta-narrative, if you would, that that tells us that uh, there's some kind of a big change that's been occurring and that supposedly every 500 years Christianity has a rummage sale and and gets rid of some stuff and keeps other things, and, and that we're kind of at that point. Now, it, I, on a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, I played Phyllis Tickle talking about this 500-year phenomenon and completely shot it down. I mean, if you know anything about Christian history, you know this is just ridiculous okay i it uh, it's ridiculous on its face especially the ex- the way she ex- she explains it um but what brian mclaren here watch what he's doing this is very subtle and it's very very hard to catch he's trying to get you to say it you to understand that you you gotta understand that the young people they have a different way of understanding truth and it's in and, and there's a problem here and there's there's a shift that's going to take place and watch what he's going to go after he's going to claim it's postmodernism and listen listen to what he's doing but it's very subtle but i when you actually critically analyze it what he's saying doesn't make any sense and it's not true
5: Among christian with these, these uh, shifts in
1: culture describe okay and
0: where's the sh- okay watch this the reason why this is subtle is because it's he is linking up how we understand truth to the culture so you see the thing is is that if you believe in the in systematic theology and doctrine and analyzing things and and you believe in propositional truth claims you see that's just a cultural phenomenon and we have a different way of viewing truth so what he's doing is he's undermining truth by saying how you understand truth is it, it, the, that that's just a cultural phenomenon that's where the subtle shift is, and it's dangerous, and it's wrong.
1: What that shift is all about, you said that we're shifting because we're really missing the boat with a lot of people. What's, what's the energy driving
5: shift? What's the direction of moving on? Well, you know, this is where it really gets complex. And it was a lot easier for me 10 years ago. And now I think I see so many layers of it. I probably am not nearly as clear as I used to be in addressing that. But here would be one way to say it uh, the story of the last 500 years, in many ways, for Christianity, was the story of colonialism. Uh, in the southern European, Catholic Christians spread Catholicism around the world. Northern European Protestant Christians spread Protestantism around the world. But Christian faith always went hand in hand with colonialism by European nations. We in the U.S. picked that up with our own version of American colonialism that we could talk about.
0: Okay, so apparently Christianity got wedded to colonialism. Uh, notice the categories he's working in are m- Marxist categories. just want to point that out. Um, let's move on.
5: But when you have faith and economic and military power put together, you develop ways of arguing, ways of promoting your beliefs that uh, were very effective. But then we reach a point.
0: Okay, so listen to what he's saying. Okay, you got to stop again here. He's arguing that Christianity got hooked up with colonialism and this economic and political system and as a result of it there were certain ways of argumentation to support the Christian faith that were radically impacted by colonialism. Now there might be instances of this, but what he's he's going after is not to get rid of the not to tease out Christianity from colonialism. He's going to replace instead a completely different way of understanding truth, which is very subtle and very toxic. We continue.
5: After World War II, I think where there's a profound rethinking about the whole project of colonialism and the whole project of industrialization and all the rest that goes along with it these last 500 years. And that rethinking, uh, that that critique of Western civilization on itself, I think is the drive. And the way I would say it is... uh, is this 500 years ago, the medieval worldview and the Christian faith were, were fused?
0: And Stop. No, this is not the problem that preceded the Reformation. The problem was that Roman Catholicism basically abandoned the gospel and instead erected an entire religious system based upon works. The things that you have to do to save yourself. That's why there was monasteries. That's why there were people making pilgrimages to Rome, to Jerusalem, and uh, saying all these Hail Marys are, doing, are cr- crawling on their knees up these steps that supposedly Christ had climbed up. I mean, it was this elaborate system of works. This isn't a medieval issue. This was an issue of law versus gospel. Self righteousness versus the righteousness of Christ, but he's not operating in those categories. So listen carefully to what he does here, because what he's what's he going to attack? He's going to under attack systematic theology and how you read your Bible. Here we go. And through uh, everybody from
5: Copernicus and Galileo to Luther and Calvin, two in their own ways, Thomas Hooker and uh, uh, Hooker and Cranmer. Uh, they were in the process of uh, of separating Christian faith from the medieval worldview,
0: but then- no, Luther was not in the, trying to get rid of the medieval worldview. this wasn 't a culture war, this was a war regarding the gospel. This was a battle for the scriptures, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happened is is that Roman Catholicism and the medieval mindset that followed their works, righteousness, religion, suffered a major setback. But it's still alive and well. We continue.
5: Then in the last 500 years, the Christian faith became enmeshed with the modern worldview. And now I think we're in the process of a similar kind of... Of uh, disembedding taking place. So
0: now this is an interesting meta narrative that he's telling here. So he's telling you this story. The story is is that you know so the colonialism and the modern worldview and the medieval worldview has gotten enmeshed in Christianity, and the Reformation was really unmeshing. Christianity from the medieval worldview, and now in a similar way, the emergent church is trying to unmesh the modern worldview from the postmodern worldview because how we understand truth, that, uh, that truth is relative from whatever cultural uh, view you're coming from, a medieval worldview, a modern worldview, or a postmodern worldview. It sounds true, but it's not. Truth is truth regardless of what your your cultural worldview is whether you're colonial, Marxist, socialist, whether you're capitalist, whether you're uh, you, you are from the Dark Ages, whether you lived in the Roman Empire and, and the time of of the Republic or the time of the uh, Caesars. Truth is truth. Okay, and we're going to blow this out of the water here in a little bit, because what he's basically trying to attack what he's doing is he's telling a story that's designed to unhinge you, unhinge your certainty regarding how you read scripture and watch where he goes with this.
5: And I believe that the Christian faith has to play a key role at this juncture, just as we did in the last juncture of actually helping imagine and create uh, this next uh, way of living out our faith in the world
0: imagine and create huh imagine and uh, hmm interesting i thought that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints we don't get to reimagine it
1: one of your themes is how christianity is wedded to modernity Uh,
0: by the way if you understand modernity uh, read Christianity and Liberalism. If you don't have that book already, it's an ebook available for purchase at piratechristianradio.com. Go to the store and, and purchase the book Christianity and Liberalism. It's an ebook, and we'll send you the link for you to download it. Um, that book shows the, not that modernity and Christianity were enmeshed. It was showing how modernity was attacking Christianity. Modern liberalism. Modernity... And Christianity have never been friends. Never.
1: Say something about what these are a lot of pretty big yeah, philosophical on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but you're getting at some important things about what we need to wrestle with. So yeah. w- w- what's the sure. struggle with modernity about? Sure.
5: Well, let me give, uh, let me maybe give three examples. Um,
0: okay, this is interesting. This is where the rubber hits the road here. So basically, watch what he, how he's going to define modernity here. Watch this.
5: One of the characteristics of modernity intellectually is analysis. We try to understand something by taking it apart and critiquing it. We find what's wrong with it and we break it down into its pieces.
0: Okay. According to McLaren, analysis is a artifact of modernity. So if you, if you analyze something, you're looking for the problems in it, and then you're in, you're coming up with, you know, solutions. This is a modern mindset. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to circle back, but I want you to just keep this thought in your mind for a minute, because if that's the case, then we shouldn't see any examples of modernity in the scriptures, especially from the New Testament writers, because uh, they were really, really, really pre-modern, right? Wait till you see what the Apostle Paul does. Apparently, the Apostle Paul was impacted by modernity, and Jesus Christ himself was, too. But watch what he's going after.
5: So, uh simple example, If some of you remember in biology class in 10th grade, you wanted to understand a frog, and so you dissected the frog, and you t- took all of its parts, and you, you understood the frog by going downward. We do the same thing with the Bible. We want to understand the Bible. We break it into testaments and books and chapters and verses and sentences, and we really feel we've nailed it when we get down to Greek roots, prefixes, and suffixes.
0: Okay, so what's being attacked here? grammatical analysis of the biblical text. If, if, you, uh, if you understand Greek and Hebrew and you are trying to understand what the Bible says by breaking it down, looking at it in the, in the original languages, and even down to the word level, then you are hopelessly modern. You need to stop doing that because this the postmodern culture is not interested in that kind of stuff. And apparently that's an example of wedding modernity with Christianity. Again, I want, I want to let this play out a little bit, but wait till you hear what the Apostle Paul did.
5: Um, and there's a lot of understanding that comes through analysis. But when we move into the postmodern world, people realize that there's another way of thinking. Analysis is good, going from the whole down to the parts. But there's another way of thinking, going from the whole to bigger wholes
0: as if uh, Christianity's never looked at that way of thinking before and this is somehow some kind of a postmodern way of thinking i don't think so let me now we'll spend a little bit of time i'm going to switch gears here and i want to spend a little bit of time in the scriptures i want to point something out to you we christians believe in what something something called the verbal inspiration of scripture okay the verbal inspiration of Scripture, which basically means that we believe that the entire Scriptures, uh, per- specifically in their autographs, okay, that means the original, the you know the first edition, so to speak, that that is inerrant, truly inspired by the Word of God, and it's not just the narrative that was inspired, but the very words themselves that the Holy Spirit chose to communicate with were inspired by the holy spirit too for when we read the scripture the scripture is composed of words and grammar and words that have meaning that tell us things they tell stories or they tell they give us poetry or they give us propositional truth claims there's there's different ways and do it but see here's the deal when you understand verbal inspiration then you understand that the bible is inspired all the way down to the words and jesus christ even goes farther than that but let me let me point something out to you here okay if brian mclaren is, is what he's saying is true and believe me when i tell you these emergent guys go a long way to try to get you to stop being a systematic theologian or to stop pulling out the Greek or the, you know, and trying to tell us what it says in the Hebrew or, or things like that. Um, If that, if using the original languages and focusing in on individual words was really a modern thing, then you would think we wouldn't find that in the scriptures. Uh, But the funny thing is, is that, uh, well, we do. Not only do we find it in the scriptures, um, I, I've got an example from the Apostle Paul, as well as from Jesus Christ himself. Let me point it out to you. In Galatians chapter 3, specifically verse 16, but we're going to read context, because that's what we do. Context, context, context. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Let me uh, go to all here. Um, we, let, let, me, let me read the Apostle Paul who, by the way, wrote the entire Galatian epistle against a false gospel, a gospel that mixed works with grace. Paul writes, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified or signed. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, rather, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I want to point this this out to you. Galatians chapter three, verse sixteen, Paul is giving an argument based upon cross-referencing Genesis 12, 7, and his argument hinges on a specific Hebrew word, and whether or not it was in the sing it was singular or plural. And Paul is assuming that. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired this to be written, and points out the fact. He points out a singular word from the Old Testament. He doesn't just read the narrative in Genesis chapter twelve; he now is keying in on a specific Hebrew word, and the word is the Greek word. It's, it's translated Greek as uh, offspring or sperm or seed. So, and he's pointing out the fact that in the Hebrew in Genesis twelve seven, it's singular. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's a very modern thing for Paul to be doing long before modernism ever showed up on the planet. That's some pretty in-depth analysis of Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, don't you think? I mean so in depth in breaking it down into its component parts that it goes all the way down to one singular word, one singular word and points out the fact that that singular word is in the, you know, is in the, is a singular, not a plural. I find that rather interesting. Don't you? So if Ryan McLaren was telling us the truth, in this little meta narrative story that he's telling and us and where he's he's going to be attacking uh systematic theology and and doctrine and things like that uh, by the way the greek word there for offspring is zera and um you would think that uh you know that there would be no examples of this yet those of us who think critically and who know that God inspired all of the individual words of Scripture, know that those words mean something, and that if you're going to combat error, it requires you to get down to that level of detail. The level of detail that says, okay, what does this one word say? Is it singular or plural? That's Paul's argument. Because it was singular, he knows it's referring to Christ, not to other people paul being very modern but paul's not the only one who is being modern in scriptures um by the way um we also have jesus doing the same thing um uh, we read about christ let me uh let me get to my notes here okay it's a singular word okay okay and uh uh, and and All right, here we go. Abraham, okay, here. In Matthew 22, verses 43 through 44, Jesus Christ attests and proves to the Pharisees his claims to deity from Psalm 110, verse 1. That's Matthew chapter 22, verses 43 and 44. Okay, and he does this by keying in on a singular word. So let me pull this up in my uh, computerized Bible here. Matthew Chapter 22, 43 and 44. Okay. All right, let me, again, context, I'm going to back it up to 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So Jesus is asking a question regarding the Messiah. Whose son is the Messiah? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. So Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls the Christ Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make, your enemies, uh, make put your enemies under your feet. Jesus here is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, and he's keying in on one word. Okay, and in the Hebrew, there it it basically is saying that the the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai, okay, sit at my right hand. And so Jesus is focusing in on the fact that David, referring to the Messiah, calls the Messiah his Lord, my Lord. And Jesus is pointing to literally in, in the Hebrew, it's just one word. Jesus is doing very modern analysis on Psalm 110, verse 1. Very strange behavior for someone to be doing long before modernism came on the scene. Yet Brian McLaren claims that this type of analysis is is a a form of Christianity wedding itself to a particular cultural view of truth modernism yet both jesus christ and the apostle paul engaged in that level of analysis and jesus christ referring to god's own word um, he had an extremely high view of it in fact jesus christ says in matthew chapter 5 verses, verses 17 through 19 listen jesus says do not think that i've come to abolish the law of the prophets i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus Christ is not only talking about um, the inspiration of Scripture as it comes down to individual words, he's breaking it down into its smallest component parts, one not not one dot or jittle or not one iota, one small little piece of the law of, of God's word will pass away i mean talk about modern microscopic analysis how is this possible if christian you know if christianity um is supposed to be doing this as a result of its being wed to modernity again i smell a rat when it comes to uh, brian mclaren and i don't think his story is in line with the facts so let's hear a little bit more from him
5: uh, and, uh, uh, for example, you take the frog and you say, well, we understand some things by dissecting him, but we understand other things by realizing, where does that frog live? Well, he lives in this little swamp, and that swamp is part of a watershed, and that watershed is part of an ecosystem. And so we then try to understand whatever it is we're looking at in light of larger holes that it's part of. That, that shift in thinking... Has huge implications for how we preach, how we teach, how we evangelize.
0: Yeah, but what's funny, Brian, is is that we actually have examples of Jesus and Paul engaging in a modern way of doing, of reading the scriptures long before modernism came on the scene. Uh, huge implications.
1: We talk a lot about stories, stories that shape our lives, yes. thinking about what the true narrative is for our lives that he's competing
0: listen to that so what is he doing now by attacking this analysis of scripture and and greek words and tenses and things like that even though paul and jesus did that um we can get rid of that and now it the this, the bible becomes a narrative not of what those guys did but it becomes a narrative of your own life that's the switch and it's deadly
1: ways of telling the story of our lives and the church is needing to weigh in with with
5: yes a new story and and actually that's one of these other big shifts i think we could say that modernity was the era of systematic theologies where we organized all of our propositional doctrines in, a, in a, an outline and that was what we wanted to convey
0: uh, so apparently we now we need to get rid of that and why? Because, you know, that's just modernity. No, sir, that's, that's reading the Bible and understanding what it says and teaches. But, see, that's gone. Systematic theology, doctrine, creeds, who needs those? It's about the narrative and, 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 and how the Bible is now the story of your life. But
5: now I think part of this sh- this uh, deep and profound shift that we're in the middle of involves rediscovering the the Christian faith as a story, a story of God and creation, a story of Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, Jesus, uh, Paul. And then that comes all the way to us, how we understand
0: it, and and it comes all the way to us. So apparently the Bible is your story, too.
5: Understand the faith as a story. I think is well. It's in some ways relatively new territory because we just haven't practiced seeing our faith that way.
0: That's because uh, we don't have any examples of that from the uh, the apostles or the early church fathers. This is a new and clever way of uh, undermining the truth of Scripture. Brian McLaren, who uh, attacks the doctrine of hell, who attacks uh, the doctrine of hell uh, of uh, the substitutionary atonement
5: and then understanding how our story relates to other stories and uh and figuring out the role that we all play in this story because it's not finished yet
0: did you hear that apparently the bible's not finished yet because see it's a story this story continues on to you and figuring out how you your role in the story because the story's not finished yet is that how we're to understand scripture the story's not finished yet and now you have your role in this story Wow. Systematic theology, Greek, and grammar are out, and you reading yourself into the story are in. That's supposedly postmodern.
5: That becomes to me a very motivating and very exciting way to understand our faith. And one result of that is it begins to shift away from
1: what you describe as a very private way of understanding yes. religious experience and a lot of focus on personal salvation, whether in the more Catholic traditions or the evangelical traditions. It's oh, like- we
0: can get away from personal salvation. Who needs that? <laughs> we got In fact, what we've got to do now is we've got to go find where God is working in the world, where, where, the, where he's writing, the story is continuing to be written, and we need to get involved in that. It doesn't matter what religion they're in. That's why McLaren says that you can be a Christian in a Muslim or Buddhist context, and there's no point in you disconnecting yourself from those religions
5: about me and my private relationship with God and my own personal salvation. It seems like we have these two uh, things that have been separated that shouldn't have been. One is a privatized personal faith, and the other is a social and institutional faith. And we have some people who major in one, others who major in the other. But I think part of what this idea of a story helps us do is it says, well, look, both of these are part of the big story of Christian faith. Uh, there is a personal dimension, a, a dimension of personal commitment, personal repentance, being in, in a, a real relationship with God through Christ. But there's also then the process of living that out and manifesting that in our society, in our institutions. In,
0: in God. Do you think Brian McLaren's the first guy to ever come around saying that uh, there's a way to put your faith into action? But that's not what he's saying because it's not flowing from the gospel again read matt harrison 's book if you again i can 't recommend it more highly, especially in light of what you 're hearing here. We continue
5: government art, business, uh, education, all the dimensions of life, generous orthodoxy. Tell us about it. what is it <laughs> well first of all it 's a plagiarized term, uh, an important uh, Theologian uh, of of this transition, Hans Frey, I believe, is the one who originally used the term, and then uh, my friend, the late Stanley Grenz, uh, picked up the term. Uh, and, and I guess the idea is this: just as we have polarities in um, uh, between private and personal, we also have a polarity in the church. One side has focused on orthodoxy, what are the right beliefs that we should hold, and the other has focused on orthopraxy, what are the right actions for us to be involved.
0: Again, I absolutely dismiss this as poppycock. All of the systematic theologies that I read, and I read old ones too, uh, all have sections on that discuss putting your faith into action. It's not just some cerebral academic thing that you know that these guys are engaged in they always touch on eventually especially when you go go back and read luther's sermons my goodness it talks about putting the gospel into action in your life so i this he's not right the problem is is that he he's he has dismissed key cardinal doctrines and again remember in his book um, uh, everything must change uh, he describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ not as something that occurred for the forgiveness of your sins, but to just show you how rotten and terrible the imperial system is and uh, and and to help you defect from uh, in the imperial suicide machine. That's really what Christ died on the cross for.
5: ...within the world. And I think the idea of generous orthodoxy basically says this, if you have right ideas... But you don't translate them into love, on good authority, we can say without love, you're not worth much. Uh, And so try.
0: Right. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we only have fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't generate that through the law.
5: Trying To get those reintegrated is, I think, the challenge of generous orthodoxy. I also think,
0: no, he attacks all kinds of orthodoxy, and basically, he you know, his subtitle makes it so that you can actually believe in something called a flaming snowflake because it's just full of these mutually exclusive uh, claims and, and putting them next to each other juxtaposition and basically claiming they're both true. It's not possible, not if truth actually has any meaning, anyway. I think you got the flavor of it, and the whole point of this exercise was to show you how Brian McLaren justifies, uh, rationalizes, and, and tells a story that ultimately ends up zapping you of your ability to go to the scriptures, even in the way the Apostle Paul and Jesus used it, talking about dots and tittles and iotas and and words and, and the fact that they were in a singular rather than a plural or focusing on specific words when, you know, that's modern and you you can't do that. We just need to read the narrative and find out our our find out how what our role is in this story. Again, very subtle, very subtle, but ultimately what it does is it creates yet another version of a works righteousness based religion where Christ didn't really die for your sins. There's no really good real good news. Instead, it's um get to work. You've got a lot of work to do and um hope you hope you make it. You know, because but that's okay. We've 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 made it softer so that uh, you don't have to worry about things like real, real orthodoxy. <laughs> All right. If you would like to uh, email me, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And would like to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener supported. And you can support us by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the donate button or sending in a check to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 791-SJC, California, 92693. Until next time, may God bless you.